Grab a Bible. And turn, wait for it, Romans 9. We're moving on. If you need a Bible, wave it, bud. Moving on, reluctantly moving on from Romans 8. We might dip back there just a little bit today. I don't want anyone to get withdrawal symptoms. And we're not going to get too far, too deep into Romans 9 this morning. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but this morning is going to be more of an introduction than a verse-by-verse exposition. I want to lay some groundwork for this next section of Paul's letter to the Romans, this section that comprises chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the reason I want to do that, the reason I want to invest a Sunday morning this way, is there are two primary approaches that you'll come across as you talk to pastors, as you read commentaries, two primary approaches to these passages, and I find both of them extremely problematic. So I want to outline those concerns up front so you won't be tripped up as we make our way through these incredibly important chapters. Two mistakes that people make reading Romans 9, 10, and 11. The first is to look at the section as parenthetical. Parenthetical as in parentheses. Uh, To treat it as a pause, as an interruption, as a side trip that Paul takes before he gets back to talking about what he's talking about. He kind of goes on a rabbit trail, is, is, is the thought, for three chapters, and then he gets back to his main point around chapter 12 or so. Some view these three chapters exactly that way, parenthetical. They're an aside. Others, here's the second primary way you'll see people treat these passages. Others look at them as allegorical. Allegorical as in metaphorical, as in it looks like Paul is talking about one thing, but it's really just a figure of speech. He's actually talking about something else. Now, I put my cards on the table already. I don't think either of those approaches is correct. But because this section is so controversial, I think it's well worth slowing down to make sure we're on the same page before we go diving headlong verse by verse into chapter 9. So it's going to be a go slow now to go fast later kind of a morning. Because if those are wrong ways to read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I think they are, then what's the right way? And what makes us so sure? And why is this so important? That's going to be our study this morning. So let's read a few verses. Let's see what Paul has to say, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 9, verse 1. You never thought we were going to get here, did you? I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And we'll pause there. It's easy to see, just reading that handful of verses, how people look at that, compare it to what Paul said right before that, and say, all right, he's going off on a tangent. This is a side trip. This is a parenthetical expression. Because Paul does that sometimes, right? 
We saw him do it in 1 Corinthians. He did it again in 2 Corinthians. He does it a lot, actually. He interrupts his train of thought to chase a squirrel, to go after a butterfly, to talk about something else, and then come back to his main point. And it's easy to glance at what we just read and say, oh, he's doing it again. Rabbit trail time. Because what was Paul just talking about? Before we turned the page to chapter 9 and started in on Israel and the Israelites and the Jewish people, what was Paul talking about? Who was he talking about? When in doubt, say, Jesus. He was talking about Jesus. And he was talking about who you and I are in Jesus and how nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Jesus. Last week wasn't that long ago. Romans 8.35. Go ahead and look if you want. Romans 8.35, Paul asks, he asks rhetorically, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will, what will, can anything? And he goes on to answer his own question, no, no one and nothing. Verse 39, nothing can, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then all of a sudden he's talking about Israel and the people of Israel. Complete change of subject, right? Wrong. Seems like it. Except no. Because remember how Paul is structuring this letter. His letter to the Roman church. We haven't talked about it in a while because we've been on this deep dive into the beauty and majesty of chapter 8. But, but go back, think big picture for a second. How is this letter structured? It's a dialogue, right? The letter reads like a conversation between Paul and an imaginary reader in Rome. Paul makes a point, this is the flow of the letter, he makes a point, and then he anticipates what his reader in Rome is going to think, how that reader will respond, and then he answers the response he imagines that reader having. It's a back and forth sort of a thing. Remember, Paul hadn't visited the church in Rome yet. He's never met the vast majority of the people that he's writing to. So he's crafting this argument meticulously, painstakingly. He wants to make sure that the systematic theology that he's building comes across clearly. He's, he's taking pains, he's taking every possible measure to ensure he's not misunderstood. Let, 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 let me show you what we're talking about. Go back to chapter 5. Let's put eyes on this. Let's remind ourselves how Paul does this. Flip back to chapter 5. Paul's talking about grace, right? He talks about it at the beginning of chapter 5. Romans 5.1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and so forth. He talks about it at the beginning of the chapter. He's still talking about it at the end of the chapter. Scroll down. Second part of verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's talking about grace, all of grace, nothing but grace. And then he says, I know what you're thinking. As you, as you turn to chapter 6, he's, he's, he's saying to his imaginary reader, here's, here's where your mind is going. You're wondering if it's all about grace, and it's all about grace because God is glorified in grace. Should we continue in sin so that God has to give more grace, so that God gets more glory? That's the question he asks in chapter 6, verse 1. He's replying to the response that he's imagining his reader in Rome is having. 
Should we continue in sin that grace might abound? He asks the question in verse 1, and then he answers it starting in verse 2. Certainly not. Heaven forbid. Uh Uh-uh. That's how Paul has been structuring this letter. Not just in chapters 5 and 6, all along. You can go back on your own and remind yourself. You'll see it again and again. So with that in mind, that framework, that back-and-forth cadence that Paul has been using, look again at chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer over the next several verses, no one. No one and nothing. So having said that, having having completed that back and forth, what's the next question that Paul knows a smart reader is likely to ask? Not, not, Not just likely to ask, going to ask. Hint. Remember that the church in Rome was comprised of both believing Jews and Gentiles. So what's the next question Paul knows a Jewish believer especially is likely to ask? What about Israel, Paul? What about the Jews? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You said that in chapter 8, verse 1. So if Israel accepts Jesus, can they be saved? Can their condemnation be removed? In in verse 29 and 30, you talked about God saving those he foreknew. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he called, those he justified, he glorified. Okay, you foreknew, God foreknew Israel. So can Israel be justified? Paul, you're speaking of plans and promises that God has made. Well, God made plans and promises to Israel. Why didn't he save them? God said he loved Israel with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. If God broke that promise, why should we believe him when he makes promises to us? Why should we believe him when he says that nothing will separate us from his love? Because something separated Israel. Those are reasonable questions, right? I'm not saying they don't have answers. I'm saying it's reasonable to assume that a first century believer, especially a Jewish believer, reading Romans 8 would probably have some of those questions. And Paul, being a first century Jewish believer, would understand that, would expect that he could relate to that. All of which to say, looking back at Romans chapter 9 now, if we look at it through those eyes, through that lens, Paul's not changing the subject. Paul's doing what he does. He's answering the question he knows his reader is going to have, what about Israel? In light of what you just said, Paul, can you talk to us about the implications for Israel? And the first few lines of his response make it clear this is a painful subject. This is very personal to Paul because he's not just a Jew, remember. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the governing body responsible for the rejection of Jesus. He may not have been part of the Sanhedrin at the time, but those were his guys. That was his circle. So his response was deeply personal for him. And he says, what's happened to our people hurts my soul. I would trade places with them if it were possible. I'd spend eternity in hell myself if it meant that it could could change what's happened to them. Because at this point in history, what's happened to them? What has happened? What is happening to Israel as Paul writes this letter? 
Judgment. <clears throat> Judgment. Shortly before the crucifixion, Matthew 23, we catch up with Jesus. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He's weeping because he knows his people have rejected him. He knows that crucifixion is inevitable. It's just logistics from this point. But he's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for them. He's weeping for what their rejection will mean. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Matthew 23, 37. You're doing it again. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now look, your house is left to you desolate. Now the fulfillment of that we know is in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, burns the city, and the Jews who weren't killed outright were either driven out or enslaved hadn't happened yet. Paul's writing probably 58 AD. It's more than a decade away. The desolation that Jesus pronounced, it's, it's still coming, but the church knew it was coming. And if they didn't know the details, they at least knew the broad outline. They knew the word of Jesus, who spoke about it in the Olivet Discourse. They knew prophecy, like we're reading on Wednesdays in Isaiah. They knew prophecy like Zechariah 11, verse 6. I'll no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I'll give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hands of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. I'm going to turn the Jewish people over to their enemies. Paul knew that, and he knew that they knew that, the people that he's writing to. And he knew, knowing that, his readers would ask, Paul, how do you reconcile everything you just said about the love of God with everything we know about the condition of Israel? Paul's answer is, yeah. He, he acknowledges, sadly, he, he, he admits painfully, yes, right now Israel is under judgment. Of course they are. Clearly they are. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But, and this is the point he's going to develop in the next three chapters, it will get better. Judgment won't be forever. Over the next two chapters, he's going to explain that. He's going to build the case why that's true, why we should believe that's true. And then he gets to chapter 11, he's just going to declare it. I say then, Romans 11 verse 1, as God Cast away his people? Certainly not. Another question and answer. You're wondering about the Jews coming into this section. I've been talking about the love of God and the grace of God and the promises of God, and you're wondering if God's judgment against Israel calls all of that into question. Does God's judgment against Israel give us reason to doubt his love? No, Paul is going to say. Because God is going to redeem Israel. And when he does, that will be the single greatest demonstration of his love. That will be the single greatest testimony to his love that the world has ever seen or ever will see. God is going to redeem Israel. How do we know? Other than Paul says so. Dozens of different ways. All kinds of different passages. But let's make it easy on ourselves. Let's go back to where we just were. Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you stoned the prophets. You're doing it again. I wanted to gather your children together. You didn't let me. See, your house is left to you desolate. What does Jesus say next? 
For I say to you, you shall see me no more forever and ever. Amen. No, conspicuously no. You shall see me no more till you say, until something happens, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When a remnant of Israel comes to Christ, hasn't happened yet, but it will. And when it does, when that remnant confesses their national sin and believes on his name for forgiveness, they will be forgiven. Get this. Wrap your heart around this. The people who rejected Jesus and handed him over to be crucified will be redeemed by the death that he suffered at their hands. That's love. So Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is saying this is not a parenthetical expression that has nothing to do with anything. This is a thoughtful, powerful, critically important extension. It's a continuation of what we've been talking about. We can trust God when he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Israel's not an exception to that. They will be the greatest example of that. And he's going to develop that argument. He's going, to, he's going to construct that position in greater detail over the next three chapters. God's not done with Israel, has promises to keep to Israel. And when he says he loves Israel with an everlasting love, he means it. But you know there are people who refuse to accept it. Just can't wrap their heads around the idea. Just, just can't bring themselves to believe that there's any possible future other than kindling in hell for the people who rejected Messiah. The ones who handed Jesus over to be crucified surely must burn in hell forever. Surely that must be the unpardonable sin. Which brings us to error number two. We said the first error was treating these three chapters as parenthetical. The second is treating them as allegorical. Believing that when Paul says Israel, he might be talking about anything, but he's not talking about Israel. Because how could he? God's done with Israel. He's cursed Israel. There's no future for Israel. He can't be talking about Israel. He must be talking about the church. Holocaust Remembrance Day was Friday, January 27th. That's not an arbitrary date. That's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the most notorious of the Nazi death camps. Holocaust Remembrance Day. From 1935 to 1945, and especially from 41 to 45, six million Jews were systematically murdered by the Nazis and by their allies. Worth saying out loud, the Jews were not the only people group targeted by the Third Reich, the Romani, the Poles, blacks, Ukrainians, the disabled homosexuals, also marked for death. Even so, we, we, we tend to still associate the Holocaust with the Jewish people because of the sheer scale and the singular hatred behind the slaughter. Six million people. That's two-thirds of the Jews living in Europe at the time, one-third of the world's Jewish population. Six million, more than a million of them children, the Third Reich particularly targeted children. Why? Because by eliminating children, they could ensure that a future generation of Jews would not be born. Six million. 
You may have seen the meme floating around social media on Friday. If we observed one minute of silence for each of those six million souls, the world would be silent for 11 and a half years. That's not fake news. Do the math. It works. 11 and a half years. Now, it's not the first time in history someone's tried to wipe out the Jewish people. Pharaoh tried it in the days of Moses. Haman tried it. We read about it in the book of Esther in 5th century B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes tried it in the 2nd century B.C. That's how we got Hanukkah. Not the first time someone has tried to wipe out the Jewish people. Not the last time. Scripture speaks of a future seven-year period. We call it the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the second half of which will include another attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. This time under the leadership of a coming world leader we call Antichrist. And the next time, the time that we read about in the future, Zechariah 13.8 says that two-thirds of the world's Jewish population, not just in Europe, two-thirds of the world's Jews will be killed. And you don't have to be a theologian to see that the stage is being set for that right now. Even, even a casual observer can look at the news and see anti-Semitism is dramatically on the rise around the world. Meanwhile, Iran and any number of other Islamic states boast that the destruction of Israel is their number one foreign policy objective, all at a time that Israel has one remaining ally in the entire world, and we're pretty flaky. All of which is setting the stage for Israel to feel compelled to enter into the treaty brokered by Antichrist that kicks off the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years of tribulation. If I just sent you spiraling on overload, come back. It's been a while since we've talked prophecy on Sunday morning. I get that. If this is brand new, grab me after. I would love to get you started. It doesn't need to be overwhelming, I promise. But, but, but for now, just, just come back, because the details aren't important for the point that I'm making. The details aren't critical, so come back and ponder this with me. Why this consistent theme in Jewish history? Jewish history past, Jewish history future, Jewish history that's unfolding right now. Why this consistent hatred of the Jewish people? The facile answer is the Jews are God's people. The Jews are God's chosen people. Satan hates God, so Satan hates the Jews. And I'm, I'm not going to say that's wrong. But I think there's a little bit more going on. Every time we study prophecy, we ask ourselves, why do we study prophecy? And yeah, prophecies in the Bible and all of Scripture is useful for instruction, correction, conviction. But, but there's another reason. The focus of every major prophecy is what? Is who? Say it louder. Jesus. Yeah. Prophecy teaches us Jesus. That's never a bad thing. That's always a good thing. Prophecy teaches us Jesus. Starting with the very first prophecy ever, Genesis 3.15. The seed of a woman who will be bruised by Satan, but ultimately will crush Satan. That's talking about Jesus. First prophecy we read in Scripture, right after Satan successfully baits humanity into sinning, He's told, he hears, God's going to send a Redeemer. And gradually over the centuries, we're given more and more information. God, God shares more and more detail about the identity of that Redeemer. That, that he'll come from Israel. He'll be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
the tribe of Judah, the family of David, the place of his birth, Bethlehem, the time of his birth, the circumstances of his birth. But, but, but go, back to, go back to the second one. Genesis 12.3, God says to Abraham, in you all of humanity will be blessed. From your lineage will come forth this Redeemer. For at least 20 centuries before Jesus is born, Satan knew his destroyer would come out of Israel. So if you're Satan, and the very first thing you've ever heard about this Redeemer is that he's your mortal enemy, immortal enemy, and his destiny would be to crush you and destroy you, wouldn't you have a vested interest in trying to prevent him from ever making it on the scene? Wouldn't you try with all of the resources available to keep him from showing up? Wouldn't you make it your highest priority to keep Jesus from being born? I would. And Satan's way smarter than me. You can argue that he's insane, but he's a genius. Wait, way beyond genius. So, so we've got Pharaoh and Haman trying to wipe out the Jews, trying to keep Jesus from being born. We've got Herod in Matthew 2 trying to assassinate Jesus right after he's born. Kill all the baby boys. It doesn't matter as long as the Messiah is one of them. As long as we keep him from preaching a single word, from doing a single miracle, so that when he dies, no one will notice or care. If I were Satan, that's how I would do it. But then how do we explain the Holocaust? The Holocaust of the 20th century, the future Holocaust of the Tribulation, and, and, and all of the other instances of monstrous anti-Semitism that have happened in the world since the birth of Jesus. Paul tells us Colossians 2.15, I think if there's a typo on the slide, it's Colossians 2.15, Jesus won. He disarmed Satan and his henchmen, triumphed over them, openly mocked them. Jesus won. Jesus said on the cross, paid in full. Nothing Satan can do about that. Now he can't undo it. Nothing he can do to change it. So why, why is he still coming against the Jews? You'd think all of his energy, all of his bile and vitriol would be directed against the church. Jesus died on the cross. Nothing can change that. All Satan can hope to do is keep as many people as possible from finding out about it, from slipping from his grasp. And, 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 and I don't think there's any question that that's happening. The rise of anti-Semitism notwithstanding, Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. Christians are the most persecuted demographic in the world, and that's becoming more true, not less true, with every passing year. But, but, it, but it's clear, even, even so, Satan still reserves all kinds of hate and fury and time and energy for the Jews, for Israel. What's that about? Is, is he just that sore loser? I don't think so. I mean, maybe. Maybe. But I don't think that's all of it. What did we say precedes the return of Jesus? Matthew 23, one more time. The believing remnant of Israel crying out. The believing remnant of Israel confessing their sin and asking forgiveness in the name of Jesus. The believing remnant of Israel saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's, that's not something we see in just one verse, by the way. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. Zechariah 13.8, it was on the screen a moment ago, where we read about two-thirds of the world's Jewish population being slaughtered in the tribulation. What does God say in the very next verse? Two-thirds will be slaughtered, but one-third shall be left. And I'll bring the one-third through the fire. I'll refine them as silver. I'll test them as gold. 
They will call on my name at the end of that testing, at the end of that tribulation, because that's what the tribulation is. It's a time of testing, a time of chastening. They'll call on my name, and I will answer them. I'll say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. One more. We, I could do this all morning, but just one more. Hosea 5.15. I'll return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. That's Jesus. You'll see me no more until I hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there'll come a day, I'm not going to leave forever, there'll come a day that they'll seek my face. In their affliction, in tribulation, they'll earnestly seek me. And when they do, Jesus returns. Where are you going with this, Patrick? I'm saying Satan isn't stupid. Credit where credit is due. Satan's not stupid. Satan knows the word. And I think it's possible what Satan has in mind even today is let's wipe out the Jewish people. Because if there are no Jews, there's no believing remnant to repent. If there's no believing remnant to repent, there's no believing remnant to call on the name of the Lord. If no one, if no one of Israel calls on the name of the Lord, is it possible that Jesus doesn't return and Satan gets to stay the God of this world? I'm not convinced that's how it could ever possibly work, but Satan might think it's his last shot. And if that's true, it would go a long way to explaining why even after the cross, Satan seems hell-bent, literally, on wiping the Jewish people off the face of the planet. And it serves to underscore. It serves to highlight. It serves to emphasize this morning why we don't want any part of it. Why would we be? How could we be? For the most of the last 2,000 years, most of the church, most of the time, has been Satan's unwitting accomplice. Because for the last 2,000 years, most of the church, most of the time, has believed, has thought, has insisted what Paul says in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is allegorical. He's not talking about Israel, he's talking about the church. God's done with Israel, and all his promises to Israel have devolved to the church. And that's nothing less than an attack on God's character. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then and only then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Less poetically less wrapped up in double negatives, what God is saying, the way you'll know I've abandoned Israel is that the sun, the moon, and the stars will all blink out of existence. If that hasn't happened, if there is still light coming from the sky, I'm not done with Israel. To say that God is done with Israel is to call him a liar. Treating Romans 9, 10, and 11 allegorically is an attack on God's character. It's saying that he, he, was, he had his fingers crossed when he spoke to Jeremiah, that he doesn't keep his promises. It's an attack on his character. It's an attack on his word. Because, because if, the, if the word of God doesn't mean what it says and say what it means, then it's all up for grabs, isn't it? If you've ever heard Ken Ham talk about why it's, it's important to read Genesis 
seriously, carefully. He would say literally. It's, it's because if, if we give ourselves permission to write our own rules at the beginning of the book, then, then the entire rest of Scripture is subject to our own whimsical interpretation. It's an attack on God's character. It's an attack on God's word. It's an attack on God's kingdom. Because if God doesn't have a plan for a literal Israel, then what purpose does he have for a literal kingdom? So we've got to go back and reinterpret a bunch of other Scripture. But, but beyond all that, it's an attack on God's people. The people that God calls the apple of his eye. If God has truly, eternally cursed Israel, doesn't that give us permission to hate them? History would say yes. History would say people take advantage of that opportunity. And it's not like we need much encouragement, is it? Our pride longs to find someone more evil than we are, someone who sins worse than we do, someone who's beyond forgiveness, so we can feel better about ourselves. So we can feel smug and superior because at least we're not them. They're the really bad ones. I mean, I mean that, and, and that has implication beyond, beyond the Jewish people, if you think about it. If there's, someone, if there's anyone that God can't forgive, if there's, there's someone, if there exists a set of people that God won't forgive, then it stands to reason that there might be someone that I'm justified in not forgiving. I get to be hard-hearted and bitter and unforgiving. Why? Because God gets to do it. But, but set that aside. Just set that aside. Focus on the attack of replacement theology specifically. That's one of the terms for this false teaching. It's also supersessionism and, and, and some other things. Let's consider the threat that it poses to God's people specifically, because it's not hypothetical. 1543, Martin Luther wrote a little book called On the Jews and Their Lies. In it, he calls the Jews a miserable and accursed people. He deems them the great vermin of humanity. And he says, for such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that the Jewish people assuredly have erred and gone astray. Even a child can comprehend this. If you don't see this, you're stupid. For one dare not regard God as so cruel that he would punish his own people so long, so terrible, so unmercifully. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. 400 years later, a German house painter named Adolf drew inspiration from Luther's writing. Speaking to a crowd in Berlin in 1924, he said, I believe that today I am acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God as I announce the most important work that Christians could undertake, and that is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once and for all. And those words were met with a standing ovation. You, you, the point is you can draw a straight line, a bright line, from replacement theology to the last Holocaust. I find it impossible to believe that there won't be a similar cause and effect with the next Holocaust. And the, and, the, and the sad thing is, today, we have less excuse than Martin Luther had. The reformers, at least, could look around and say, we don't see how this is possible because no nation in the history of nations has ever ceased from being a nation to become a nation again. So we can understand a little how they might look at the, 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 the dry bones prophecy of Ezekiel 37, other prophecies of Israel's restoration, and say, well, that, that can't happen. I can't imagine it. It can't be possible. There must be another way of reading it. It must be allegorical. I mean, 
criminal act of faith, yes, but maybe, you know, maybe they're doing their best. But, but we don't have to imagine it. We don't have to imagine Israel's national restoration. We've seen it. And seeing it should remind us every prophecy of Scripture that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled how? Literally. Descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, fled to Egypt, taught the people, healed the blind, entered Jerusalem triumphantly on the exact day that Gabriel said, betrayed by a friend, the money used to buy a field, crucified before crucifixion was invented, crucified between thieves, hands and feet pierced, mocked and spat upon, vinegar to drink, dice rolled for his clothes, prayed for his enemies, stabbed in the side, buried with the rich, resurrected from the dead. We could keep going, but every prophecy of Scripture that's been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. Every prophecy of Scripture yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled literally. We don't need our new hermeneutic. We don't need new rules of biblical interpretation. The ones we have work just fine. And they tell us, Daniel 9.24 and a bunch of other places, that a literal Israel will literally be regathered in the land, literally chastened by God for seven literal years. During that time, literal Jews were literally come to faith in Jesus and at the end of that time, that literal remnant will call upon the name of the Lord and Jesus will literally, physically return. But why? Why does it make, why, 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 why does it make sense? They handed Jesus over to be crucified. Why does God forgive them? Why does God do anything? Why does he forgive us for his glory? He's right. God does everything that he does for one reason, for the glory of his name. Romans 3.26 and, and really the whole book of Romans. Why does God redeem us? For the glory of his name. Why does he redeem Israel? Same reason. Ezekiel 36. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. That's the last 1900 years of Israeli history. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. But I had concern for my holy name. I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. You deserve justice. But I'm going to have grace for my holy name's sake, which you profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name. This is not parenthetical. This is smack dab central to Paul's whole point. And it's not allegorical. This is literal, monumental truth. And, and we're going to be here to see it. We're safe in heaven during the chastening part. Glad for that. But when Jesus returns, we return with him. We get to see the redemption of Israel with our own eyes. And I'm glad for that. How glorious will that be? But as we wrap up this morning, what, what, what do we, we do in the meantime? Time's getting away from us. So, so four points quickly is as we head for the finish line. Four points that conveniently Paul's already given us. Look once more at those five verses that open Romans, uh, Romans 9. What do we see? What's Paul modeling for us? First thing, verse 2, if we follow Paul's example, we're going to care about these things. We're going to care about Israel. We're going to care about the Jewish people. We're going to care about their current situation. We're going to care about their future redemption. Quoted a lot of verses this morning. 
Try to, try, to, try to load in a lot of theology. But, but, but we, we, we got to come back to, to realizing, to recognizing, this was not academic for Paul. Look at verse 2 again. Hear Paul's heart. Great sorrow, continual grief, because Paul's heart was God's heart. For God's people, people he loved, souls he died for. If we forget this, if we stop caring about this, we will Push Romans 9, 10, and 11 off to the margins. And our understanding of God and God's love will suffer. The future of Israel is worth caring about. Paul tells us that. The future of Israel is worth talking about. Paul tells us that too. Verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm talking to you. I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing witness on the Holy Spirit. This is a conversation, he's saying, worth having. You can argue, and you'd be right, this isn't doctrine essential to salvation. This isn't a non-negotiable. We shouldn't make this more important than the gospel. You're right. I agree with all of that. There's a time to set differences like this aside for the sake of the gospel. But I don't think we should set this aside so far that we forget where we put it. I don't think we should set it aside so far it's out of reach. Are we talking about doctrines essential to salvation? No. But we're talking about beliefs that bear on the character of God and the integrity of his word and the future of the church and Israel and the nature of the kingdom. These things are worth thoughtful conversation. And those who disagree have 19th centuries of momentum behind their wrong understanding, we've got to speak up because we're playing catch-up. We need to speak articulately, confidently, not stridently, but passionately because this matters. Third thing I think Paul shows us, the future of Israel is worth praying about. Look again at verses 3, 4, and 5. Whatever else Paul is doing, whatever else he's saying, it's clear he's praying He's praying like Moses prayed, Exodus 32, 32. God, blot me out of your book of life if it means another chance for these crazy people. How much do we care about the Jewish people? How much do we heed God's commandment to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? How much are we burdened by the lost in general? Even those close to us, known to us. Do we pray for our unsaved friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers? Do we pray as much for people who matter to us as Paul prayed for a people who at this point were mostly wanting him dead? Finally, last thing modeled by Paul, or last thing we have time for. What we learn reading about Israel past, present, and future. We learn that this is worth learning from. What happened to Israel? Paul tells us, verse 4, they took their adoption too lightly, regarded God's glory too casually, viewed his covenants too glibly, looked at the opportunity to serve him selfishly. And it would have cost the Jewish people eternally were it not for the grace of God. As it was, they've been blinded for 2,000 years. Paul's going to talk more about that. Without a homeland for most of that time, without the promise of heaven, most of them, that's a heavy price indeed. 
But what about us? What can we learn from their error? From our adoption, our promises, our glory, the ministry given to us. We can't lose our eternity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But we can be put on the shelf. We can be saved souls wasting their lives. How do we make sure that we're not? Verse 4. Do what Israel didn't do. Esteem our adoption highly. We're children of the living God. Treasure His promises greatly. Trust them. Declare them. Remind each other of them. Know we're free from the law, so walk boldly in liberty. The Jews were given the law. We've been freed from the law. Rejoice in grace continually. Pursue the ministry that He's given us joyfully. Tell the world that Jesus came incessantly. Verse 5. What is the ministry that Jesus has given us? At the end of the day, it's telling the world that Jesus came. And he came to reconcile us with the eternal blessed God. Verse 5. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Father, teach us each of us, individually, specifically, personally. What does that mean? What does that look like to us where we are in our spheres, in our contexts? What does that look like in the lives that you've carved out for us? The path that you've put us on? What is it to worship you? What is it to rejoice in you? What is it to be witnesses of your glory? Lead us. Challenge us. Remind us. We ask, oh Holy Spirit, remind us when the cares of this world are too many and too loud and too immediate, when our lives are too horizontal, oh, remind us of our adoption. Remind us of your love, your grace. Remind us of our mission. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of who we are in you.